We are learning Daf Pei. We're starting from the bottom of Ayin Tesem Base with the Mishnah discusses now again. We're talking about the Malug business arrangement between a husband and a wife. So what's the Malug business arrangement? She brings she brings in her properties to the her assets to the marriage or whatever she inherits during while she's married. And then what happens is that husband has a right to consume the fruits. As long as the principle is intact, as we learned in the class yesterday, he has the right to eat the fruits. So what's the expectation? The expectation is that if she has a piece of land, then she's not eating the fruits, so she's not gonna be busy working the land. What does she care if it's fertilized and planted and, and plowed properly? But the expectation is that it's in the husband's best interest to take care and cultivate and plant the land and everything that he should, because then he'll get revenue from the fruits. So now, we're trying to figure out how that works because he's put actually putting in money into the principal. We have to understand that. That's an important thing. He's putting in money, all the, all the farming uh, expenses into the, into the land. Then again, we're speaking of a land and fruit as one example. It could be an apartment that you're renting also. But he's putting in a lot of things into it. And then he's getting back things. So the Mishnah says the rule is somebody spending money on the, on the Malou property. Now that he's divorcing her, so the Shaila is, you know, does he have the right to say, listen, I improved your property. If I improved your property and I didn't even get as much revenue out of it, so then, you know, maybe you actually owe me money for improving your property. So what's the halacha? It doesn't make a difference. If he spent a lot and he ended, only ended up eating a little bit of fruit, or maybe he spent a little bit and he consumed a lot of fruit. Either way, we don't make any calculations whatsoever. Whatever he has spent, he has spent. Whatever he has consumed, he has consumed. And the idea is that that's the business arrangement that his wife is not compensating him for any expenses. It's in his own, it's in his own interest to put, to put those expenses into the principal. And therefore, regardless of whether it seems commensurate with the, with the production of the fruits that come out from all those expenses, he's not going to demand compensation. However, what happens? Let's say it was a, such a short marriage that he only had time to put in the expenses. So he spent on trying to produce fruit but he didn't consume, meaning let's say they were married literally two months. During those two months, he fertilized, he plants, hopefully he's waiting for the fruits. But Maisa, he didn't have a chance to eat one fruit yet. So he only has an expenses bill. Then what's the halacha? Yishava, let him swear, kama hoitzi, how much he has spent, vihito, and then he can take compensation for the wife. So this is a fascinating concept. Here, he has eaten nothing. So what is he? So essentially, he is just somebody who has benefited his wife's property. That's all he is. If he would consume something, so then that's activating the malug arrangement where he doesn't make a difference what his expenses are. He just eats and that's it. But if he hasn't eaten anything, so then it's not really the malug arrangement. It's just no different. Imagine a random person went down into the field and uh, the yori, the sos, the chavero, and he starts doing improvements. Let's say you didn't ask anybody to do that. You have a field and somebody fertilizes your field. He sends you the bill. He sends you the bill for doing that. Why is that? Just let us to understand the concept. I think this is very much misunderstood is that there's a concept that when you're mahana somebody, when you bring somebody a tangible benefit to their assets, then, then, then those, that, that appreciation and the value there in a way is belongs to you, it's owed to you, it's obligated to you because you are the cause of that. So that's the idea. Normally, if somebody would just do work on your field, you may not have asked them to do it, you still owe them the money if they improved your field. So here, if the husband didn't eat any fruit and all he has done is improve the field, so then actually he sends his wife to Bill. And it's interesting, we believe him. He makes, a, he makes a shua, he swears how much it is that he spent, and then he's able to take the compensation from that. So it all depends. If he ate, he gets no compensation for his expenses. If he didn't eat at all, then he gets compensation. So the Gemara says, Kama Kimo. We said if he eats even just a little bit, so then uh, that now means he can't send his wife any bills for expenses. So the Gemara says, Amar Basi, if you go even one dried fig, very small measure. If only he ate it in a respectable way. Meaning, what does it mean respectable? He took it home, 
brought it. It wasn't in a rush. He sat down at the table and he ate the dried fig, he ate the dried fig from, the, from the field. But if he was rushed and he was hurried and he was in the field when he ate it, then that's not considered such a significant benefit that he received. And if it's not, not such a significant benefit that he received, then again, he could demand the compensation for the expenses. Another definition, top of the Amar, even if it's just a little cake of pressed dates. So evidently, the little cake of, that, of uh, pressed dates may even be worth less than the dried fig. What if there are squeezed out dates, meaning you'd squeeze all the juice out? What was, the, you used to squeeze it mainly for beer. Our beer today are from grains. Usually for them, it was, uh, in the Babylonian times, it was the dates. So if they say you are, they already squeezed out all the juices, from the dates, and now you just have a cake of the, from the squeezed out dates. Is that significant? And often the Gemara says, take it, we don't resolve that question. Now the Gemara moves on. We said before that all these things are only when you eat them in an unhurried, respectable way in your home. Let's say you didn't consume the produce in a dignified way. How much do you have to eat? Meaning, there's got to be some amount that even if I eat it in an undignified, unhurried uh, way in the field where it's not so respectable, but if I eat a certain a huge amount, obviously there's going to be a, a threshold cross where it's going to be considered I got or not. So what is that? So Amar Ula Pliba Jerem Rabbim Rabba there are two Amar Rabbim Israel disagree. Chad Amar Bekezer one says produce worth in Israel. Chad Amar Sabachatina one said consuming produce worth at dinner. That's the amount of benefit that's regarded as significant. And even if he ate it hurriedly in the field, he would still receive. Um, he's still not going to receive compensation. Again, him here receiving the benefit from the payros is going to offset his right to demand compensation from his wife. Says the Gemara. The judges in the town of Pompadisa, they passed the Ravuda made a ruling about the husband who was eating the bundles of the grapevine. So let's just understand this. In other words, he was, he was let's say there was a vineyard that his wife had. And he, he was cultivating it, planting it, working it, plowing everything. He hadn't eaten any grapes or anything like that. But he just fed the bundles of grapevines, meaning the, the part that the animals eat, he fed them to his animals. So he himself, the husband, didn't personally enjoy any of the fruits. But he took from those, from the, from the chavile's moros, the part that the animals eat, and he gave it to his animal. So the question is, is that considered a use of the field? And therefore the husband enjoyed the benefit and he can no longer send the bill for expenses? Or do I say that the husband, it's not, it, it, the husband didn't personally benefit, he only gave his animal. And therefore it's considered an insignificant benefit and he could still send his wife to bill for expenses. So the Gemara says that Rabbi Yehuda was saying that once he took that little bit for his animal and he fed it to the animal, that's a use of the field. And therefore it denies him any compensation for the investments that he made in the field. And the Gemara says, Rabbi Yehuda, the time made, this takes us to the laws of Baba Basra. And the laws of Baba Basra, if you use the field for three years in a row and nobody protests, what's the halacha? The assumption is that it's yours. So what does it mean use the field? So obviously if I go down and pick the fruits and eat them, they're mine. But what if I didn't, go and consume the pears of the field. All I did was I take the twigs and I fed them to my animal. So is that considered a chazvaka or not? Is that a usage of the field? So the one says, Review the time, review is consistent. If for the three years somebody got the grapevines from the Arla Shviyas Kalim, he fed them to his animal, it still is a chazvaka. What's the pshat? That even though he didn't personally enjoy them, he was using them by feeding to his animals. Just it's like over there, Review is considering the consumption of the grapevine, the use of the field. So to hear about look, once the husband is using the grapevine to feed his animal, that's a usage of the field, and offsets his right to demand compensation from his wife. Continues the Gemara, Amar of Yaakov, Amar of what if it's for his wife, who is a minor? So in other words, what are we talking about here? The whole idea is that after the father died, now the girl can be married, she can get married on a drabonon level. 
Again, without the father's consent, it's never going to be binding by the Daraisa. But the Rabbanon, they said that she could. But what's the halacha? She could leave. She could have Mion at any moment. So here, there's Midrabbanon, the arrangement of Nechzei Melog. But again, we have to remember, the husband here is super vulnerable. Why is she so vulnerable? Because he doesn't control whether or not he's going to divorce her. Normally, a husband has security when he puts profits into the principal. What's his security? I'm in control. If I want to divorce her, I will. And if I don't want to, she has no way out. So he has control over his investments. And that control is very important because before you pour in money to a principal, you want to make sure that the principal is going to remain and you're going to, have it, you're going to yield a return. So what happens if she's a minor and he puts in expenses? It's like you spent the money on somebody else's property. What does that mean? It means even if he did eat the fruit, even if he did enjoy something from the field, he can still always send her the bill for his expenses if, 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 if the marriage ends. Even if the girl walks out on him, she refuses the marriage. He can, has the right to demand compensation even though he enjoyed some of the fruit. What's the pshat? The pshat is, my time of the Rabbana Takana, the Rabbana made a special Takana. And it's for her. Why? We don't want the husband to ruin his, her fields. Meaning the husband may be reckless. And there are certain, you have to ask the farmers how exactly this makes sense. But you can like overwork a field in, in, in a very like anxious way because you're nervous that in a long return here, you're not, the field's not going to be around for you by the time a regular uh, cycle of farming, by the way the fruits would come. Because maybe she's going to walk out the door in any moment. So therefore, he does all sorts of reckless things. You know what it's like? The best example is like a rental car. You don't treat the rental car with respect because you know you're giving it back in three days. So therefore, the shelf life of these rental cars, how long they have, is so much shorter than all other cars. So that's the same thing. The assets of the katana were nervous that they're going to be overworked by the husband and therefore he's not going to treat properly. So now the Rabbana made a new takana. Don't worry. Even any expenses that you pour in, even on the side that you are eating a little bit of fruit, you could still send her the bill and therefore he'll treat it with respect. So it's actually a legislation which is made to protect her and therefore even though it benefits him, but it actually ultimately is in the best interest of the wife. Continues the Gemara Yitzah, there was a woman, 400 Zuz fell in Bechozai. So meaning she received an inheritance in the town of Bechozai, and the inheritance was worth 400 Zuz. Also Gavra, her husband went, Apik Shis and he spends 600 Zuz going there. I see Bar and he to bring back the 400. So it's a very interesting thing. The whole inheritance is worth 400. He spends 600 on travel expenses to get to Bechozai to go get it. When he's coming home, he needed more money. He needed 100 zuz to get back home. And he didn't have the 100 zuz. So he took the, from the zuzim of the inheritance. So after all is said and done, he walked in the door with only 300 of the 400 of her inheritance. And he had spent, he had spent 600 of his personal money and basically borrowed 100 from her in order to make it work. So what happened now? The question is, does he have the right, does he have the, does he have the right to be compensated? Can he go to his wife and say, you owe me money for bringing you all your inheritance? Can he demand compensation for his wife, for, for, from his wife for that? Is that like somebody putting in expenses into the field? And the question is, then it would depend. If he took from the field, if he enjoyed from the field, he cannot demand expenses. But if he didn't, then he could. So what is this like, these traveling expenses? So they asked Ravami whether or not he could demand the compensation from his wife. So Ravami said, Whenever you enjoy a little bit, then you can't demand expenses. So Ravami, Pshadiz, had misunderstood the story. Ravami understood that the 100 Zuz which he had taken, he had taken for his benefit. Ravami didn't realize that he took 100 of the 400 for traveling census back home. Ravami, that it was like a loan. Ravami thought he had invested it. He had uh, used it for his benefit. So like Ravami, you used 100 once you use anything, so then you can't demand for the expenses. If you would only go and spend and bringing back and the whole of your expenses would have been travel expenses, you could send that bill, send all the flight bills to the wife. 
But here that you took 100, and Rav Ami was under the impression that he took it for his benefit, meaning he used it, then it's like the husband who eats the fruits. Once he eats the fruits, he can't send the bill for the expenses. That's what Rav Ami initially understood. But then they corrected him. They explained to him, no, that's not what happened. They said, no, that's all true if he ate the fruits of the Malouk property. He enjoyed it. If he enjoyed it, then he can't sell the bill for the expenses. In this case, he's just borrowing the principal. He's taking 100 of the 400 for his travel expenses back home. So that's just like a loan from the principal. That's not using the fruits. So therefore, all of the money that he spends getting it, that's still expenses. All that is is just personal spending that he did in order to get her to get it, and therefore he still has the right that he is able to send her the bill. Now, just to bring out the point here, this might be a little bit hard to understand because going to get it seems a little bit different than you know fertilizing a field, right? It's different. But the idea is, is that if you're distanced from your inheritance, it has no value to you. And by bringing it, that is bringing out its value. That's a very interesting concept because you would say value is value, wherever it is. You just need to be able to get it. It's like a really old problem, right? Wire the money, figure it out. But that's not, doesn't like that in those days. If the money is inaccessible, so he's actually improving the value of the 400 by going ahead and getting that. So if you put it all together, then everything, everything is good. The spending of the money, therefore, the spending of the money to go get the 400 is therefore expenses that he is able to take out. So Rav Ami therefore said, oh, you're right. What did he say? He said, Imkain, if you're right, that what you're brush borrowing against the principle, then it's no different than someone who just spent money and didn't consume any of the fruit. Let him just swear how much it is that he spent, and then he's allowed to take compensation, meaning it's not considered that he enjoyed from the fruit. If it's not considered that he enjoyed from the fruit, let him swear how much his travel expenses were, and then he will be able to get it back. All right, so now we said again, what's the rule? The rule is that if the husband does not enjoy, he doesn't have benefit, he can, he can, he can send the bill to his wife for expenses. So now the Gemara qualifies. This is only the value of the Shavach, where he improved, is against the expenditures, meaning that the, the improvement is against it. Only then does he make a Shavua and take compensation. So the trial is how to understand it. You can understand that statement in one of two ways. You could say, that if the expenses aren't more than the improvement, then, than the improvement, then you could receive the expenses without even taking a shvua, meaning a kula, that the husband, if, if it's very little, the expenses are very little, he doesn't have to make a swear. You, you can just take it without it. The other way of understanding is if the expenses are more than the improvement, then even if you take a shvua, you're not entitled to what's more than the improvement. Meaning Rav Asi is just saying that the typical arrangement here, again, the husband didn't enjoy, so he's taking for his expenses. Ravami, Rav, Rav, Rav is qualifying that it only makes sense where the, where the expenses line up with the appreciation. But if they're disproportionate, then not. What is his point? Is his point, Lakula, that if it's such little expenses that it's not even equal to the improvement that you could take even without making a shvua? Or is his point, Lakhumra, that if the, the expenses are more than the improvement, then even with a shvua, you can't take. So the Gemara says, so which way should we interpret it? It means that if the improvement was more than the expenses, it's a kula. If, 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 if the expenses were very little and the improvement was a lot, so it's disproportionate, then he can take his expenses even without making an oath. People are going to be deceitful. If you don't make a people make a shvua, can't trust people. So therefore, what people are going to say that they spent a lot more than they did. I always need a shvua. That doesn't make sense. Elamar Rava, Rava, Rava interprets it the other way. The opposite. The expenses were more than the improvement, meaning he didn't do a great job. He poured in all the expenses and the improvement was very little. Then, even with swearing, he can only demand the expenses in the amount that is equal to, 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 to how much it improved. Even there, obviously it has to be with an oath. So we're saying another important qualification here. The important qualification is 
is that even when the husband doesn't benefit and he's taking his right as uh, sending her the bill for the expenses, it cannot exceed the value of the improvement. The question is, what about the story with the 400 inheritance and that he spent 600? So that's a very tough question, right? It seems like mom is right against that. It sounds like he sells the bill. So maybe in a Hanami, he's not sending her the full bill. In other words, the Gemara before was just, could he take the expenses or did he use it? So the Gemara is saying, no, he, 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 it's not considered that he used it because he was just borrowing that 100. And therefore what? Does it say he could charge her 600? Maybe in a Hanami, maybe he can't. All right, says the Gemara, let's say the husband didn't personally do any expenses. He didn't do anything. And again, we have to reiterate these concepts. If a random sharecropper walks into my field uh, uninstructed and does work, I owe him money for all the appreciation. Like I owe him money literally for that stuff. But when the Baal is doing it and the Baal is consuming fruits, so then I don't owe him a penny, right? Even if he only enjoyed very little because that's the arrangement. So what happens if the husband sent a sharecropper into the field and then the husband, let's say, ate one apple, you know, he had one little bit, and now he's divorcing his wife. Mao, could the sharecropper come to the wife and demand expenses? If there would not be a husband in the picture, he could. He could demand his expenses. That here, the husband sent him to do the work. He did the work. The husband ate one apple. Does that make that the sharecropper now cannot demand anything from the wife? Do we say that the Baal He's only coming because of the husband, meaning he's like basically the agent of the husband. It's just as the husband is removed. If the husband would do the work and have a little bit to eat, then the husband can't send the bill. So so to whoever the husband sends, whoever the husband sends in his stead to do the work cannot demand from the wife. Maybe the catalyst was the husband, but he went to do work on the field. He's going for the field. The land stands ready for sharecropping, and therefore he has the right to tell the woman, I benefited your land. I made your land go up. You owe me money. I, the person who told me to do that, was a husband, and if the husband would have done that, he can't send you the bill because of the special law of the husband. What does that got to do with me? Fascinating question. So the Mars says, Yeah, why is this case any different? Someone goes down to his fellow's field and he plants trees in it without the owner's consent. Where the law is shabbat, though, we evaluate for him the expenses and the value of the improvement. And we say, He takes whatever is less, either only his expenses or only the value of the appreciation. But I'll go upon him, you owe him that, that amount. So why is this sharecropper any different? Just because it was sent by the husband, why does that matter? At the end of the day, he, you're, he, he is someone who should be reimbursed for his expenses because he has appreciated the wife's field. It doesn't matter that the husband told him to go do it. So the Gemara says, we'll explain the difference. Why generally does a sharecropper have the right to demand the expenses or the improvement from a person? The idea is because no one else would have been working, meaning it, it wouldn't have been improved without him. The owner lost nothing. I'm just the owner. I'm just sitting on my field. Suddenly, somebody, instead of me paying out of pocket, somebody to do the work, somebody does it for me. So amazing. So therefore, you got to pay the person. But here, in the absence of the sharecropper, the bow would have been working in the field. So therefore, in a certain way, what the sharecropper doing is a loss for the wife because the husband would have been working because just that's just what a husband naturally would do because he is incentivized because he gets the fruit. So you're telling me you benefited me by walking into my land uninstructed and doing work? Why is that a benefit to me? There's a husband who would have done that and I wouldn't have had to pay him anything. So therefore, she has the right to say to the sharecropper, who says that that's called your mahanami? Normally, the reason why it's a hana is because who else is going to cultivate the land? But however, in this situation where the husband has this motive, he's like the in-house sharecropper. That's just what he's omitted to do. So therefore, what your actions aren't considered such a great hana, so I don't have to pay you. So the lumdus comes out, the reason why she doesn't have to pay the sharecropper isn't so much that he's a shliach of the bow. It doesn't end up the var. The var just ends up, it's not such a strong benefit that the sharecropper did this for the field because even without the sharecropper, the husband would have done, would have done it. 
So therefore, the Gemara says, "My havelah." How do we pass? And again, if the sharecropper did the work, the husband consumes a little bit of fruit and divorces her. Could the sharecropper demand compensation from the wife? So we look. If the husband is a sharecropper, so we assume he would have been doing the work himself. So then, since the husband is removed, the sharecropper is removed. That argument holds up. You didn't give me a great benefit. The husband would have done it. But if if the husband is not a good sharecropper, he's He's a, he's a lawyer. He's not doing anything in the field or something like that. So then the sharecropper could demand the compensation because the land is, is, is like ready, is prepared for sharecropping, meaning she surely would have had to engage sharecroppers. Her husband wasn't going to be busy farming the land. And therefore, what he does, does represent a tangible benefit. Okay, very good. Move on to Ulam de here. We know the husband has rights for the Paris, but if the husband tries to sell his rights, I'm selling you my rights to the fruit. So meaning I go to a third party. I'm not interested in farming. I just want to make cash. I need some liquid cash right away. I have no patience to farm a field, wait for the fruits, and then you know, get the fruits and their profits. I need cash. I go to a third party. I say, listen, I have the rights to all the fruits of this field. I'll sell it to you. Quick cash. Could he do that? Me, I mean, I'm not going to the Whatever he has acquired, he could sell. That's fine. It belongs to him, it belongs to him. This that the Rabban instituted, that the husband has fruits. You know why the rabbis did it? They want the whole household to profit. Meaning, it ends up being good for the wife that the husband has a steady income. Why is it good for her? It's good for the house. Steady income, there's nothing better. So here's the key. Quick money that you make, cash in a moment, is not as healthy for the relationship of the husband and wife as the steady income of fruit. So maybe the Rabban don't let him sell it and make a quick getaway with that cash. The Rabbana want him to steadily always be working that land and having that income coming in of the pro, of the produce. When they allowed to sell the rights, maybe they didn't grant him to sell his rights. Maybe they didn't grant him that. So the Gemara has a machlokas. You the bar mar marim rishid rabbana mashalasu What he has done is done. There's no He didn't do anything. And I think like you think about these economics guys, these finance guys. You jump on this, right? What's the difference? You take this. It's all cash. It's all right. You can go somewhere. So make the quick sale. You have the cash, and we'll figure out something to do with the cash. Is the fart we don't trust that he's going to do something good with the cash, or is it just not economically beneficial? Is there, a, is there a, like the, we're giving like an idea that that when you have that? There's much more unknown. It's simple. When it, you have the land, you have limited risk because the land is here. The pears are going to be produced. If he sells it, he just has money. Just greater risk. The, the greater risk. risk is a thousand times. It's scarier for the wife. Okay, makes sense. Says the Gemara, this opinion from that what he's done is valid was never said explicitly by Rava. Ella, Nikola, it was just uh, it was just an inference from someone seeing what Rava did. That he is a There was once a woman who brought into her marriage to her husband two maid servants as Rama looked property. So, so these slaves are the right of usage goes to the husband. Also, the husband went and he married another woman. So he has a second wife, and technically. His first wife's maidservants, he's still married. He's married to both women now simultaneously. He has the right to use these slaves. So he gives the new wife, he gives, says, you can use it. Oh, my new bride, I, I have a, a, the rights of usage of my first wife's maidservant. So let me, you can use it. So the first wife came in, she starts screaming, like my husband's doing the wrong thing. He's taking my maidservant that he has the right to use. And he's giving that right of usage to, 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 to my rival, the second wife. didn't pay any attention to this woman's claim. So the one who was observing the story, Rava was quiet because if a, person, if a husband has the right to transfer his Malok property, what he has done is done. So therefore the gift 
to his new wife is valid. That's why Rava didn't say anything. Velohi, that's not really true. Really, the Rabbanon gave it only Mishim So only in order, the idea is that it's all about the profit. And the reason why the husband may not be able to sell it is because we're scared of, you know, cashing out too quickly might not be good for the house. But in this case, the household does profit. Why? Because they're all living under the same roof. So whether or not she's working for you, she's working for me, she's my cleaning lady, she's your cleaning lady, it's good for the house. The Gemara is saying an absolutely interesting thing here. The vart isn't that you can't sell your rights. The vart is that you can't sell your rights because it's not good for the household's income. But in this situation where what is he doing? He's taking that instead of me using this slave woman, I'm giving it to my new wife to use, but it's still under the same roof. It's just a question of, you know, who's telling her which instructions to do or whatever it is. She's still cleaning, she's still cooking, she's still doing all the things in the home. So it doesn't really bring anything bad. It's still in the best interest of the household. So that's a unique case. Why for sure it's allowed to be done. All right, so how do we pass? The husband sells his wife's Muluk land for the produce. It's not a valid sale. My time, what's the reason? It's going, the field will be allowed to deteriorate. Why is that? In other words, and I think what the Kamar is asking is, the field will be taken care of by the buyer. Meaning what the Kamar is asking is like this. Why don't we say that, um, I know we said the opinion because the house will profits, but first the Kamar is giving us a different view. We're scared that the buyer is not going to put the right expenses into the field. What's the difference between him and the husband? The husband controls the divorce. So he knows whenever he wants to divorce, he'll divorce her. If I don't want to divorce her, I'll not divorce her. So I'm comfortable spending, putting in money. The buyer, he's vulnerable. He's gonna lose his rights whenever the husband divorces his wife. So, so, so the buyer now, he's like, why am I gonna pour in money into the field? So what's gonna to happen to the field? It will naturally deteriorate. It won't be good for the woman. So that's a reason why perhaps we don't allow the, the husband to sell his rights of fruits to somebody else. Rav Amar's second opinion would be mentioned before so that the household will profit. Stop. We want to make sure that there's the steady flow of income from the field. My now, what practical difference is it? The difference is, is that the land is close to the city. There, even if they buy or won't be pouring in money, but if it's close to the city, it will be under the observance and the watch of the wife. And if it's not being taken, it's not being taken up properly by the buyer, she'll hire sharecroppers to take care of it. Inami Balarzu, what if... What if the husband is the buyer's sharecropper? How do you like that? I like that for the irony. The husband's job is that he's a sharecropper for this party, for this, for this buyer. So therefore, since the husband is in charge of the field, there's no concern that it's going to be neglected. Certainly the husband will be working the field. It's not going to be allowed to deteriorate. So therefore, the reason doesn't apply. The difference would be, the husband takes the money from the sale and he right away invests them. If he invests them right away, he has a business. Meaning it's not like, oh, I hope to start a fund. He has a current fund, he's got a good business going. So this is what we mentioned before, it's not necessarily reckless to cash out. It might be very good, it might be a very opportune moment, it might be a great, a great deal you can make if you get the cash now. So therefore, Rafa's reason doesn't apply. We assume the household will benefit by this, uh, by this income generated from the sale. Okay, here we go. So now this takes us back to Yavamah's Daflam al-Ches. And here's just a couple words of introduction. Normally a woman has a ksuba that is paid out at the time of her husband's death or if the marriage is terminated by a divorce. What happens to a Shomeris Yavam? Oh, Yavam, right? What, what happens is that her husband dies. She has, there's no children. She's falling to Yibam to the brother. So the law is that the Ksuba is not paid in that moment. The Ksuba is not paid. And it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like hovering above the estate. Because what happens to the estate is that if Yibam is performed by the brother, then he inherits the entire estate. And she does not entitle to a Ksuba payout at that point. She'd only be entitled to a Ksuba payout later if that marriage to her brother-in-law is terminated. That's the idea. Now, if Chalitza is done, then what happens? Then she is entitled to a payoff from the estate. So it's kind of like a very interesting situation, the Shomeris Yavam. 
And also, it's the same kind of thing where, in terms of her properties that she brought into the marriage, her, all of her Maluk properties, if she ends up doing Yibam, all of those Maluk properties will be transferred to, her, to the oven. If she doesn't end up doing Yibam, then they'll go back to her and her father's home. So here, we look at the following case. She marries Let's say that she marries Yavim. She, she's still in, like, in limbo. She's waiting to see. Is there going to be Chalitza or is there going to be Yibam? If she inherits properties at that time. So the question is, does she have the right to sell it? Here, all agree she can sell it or give it away in the transfer stance. What do we mean, Bisham and Bisham? So this is contrasting also the mission we had in the beginning of the parak. In the mission in the beginning of the parak, we learned about an Arusa who inherits property. And in Arusa who inherits property, there was a dispute if she's able to sell it or not. Because even though the husband isn't practically eating the fruits yet, but it's rights, the rights are present. He's only to make Nisuin and therefore enjoy the rights. But here, Shomer's Yavim is a step lower because here it's a Suffolk Bechlal. She might not end up in, in, in the Yibam scenario. She's just bound to do Yibam. It's not like an Arusa. So here everybody agrees that even though it might end up in Yibam where the husband would, would have the rights to the fruits, but we don't see that on the table right now. Right now, what do we see on the table? That it's just a possibility that there might be Yibam in the future and therefore everybody agrees she can sell, um, she can sell the field and the husband, has, the, the, the possible Yavim has no right to block the sale. Now, what happens, Mesa, if the woman died? So again, the woman died before Yibam or Chalitza happened. So she dies in a state of limbo. What, what was happening to her? So Maya, so one question is, what happens to the Ksuba? What does that mean, what happens to the Ksuba? Let's understand the depth of that question. The estate right, of, of, of her previous husband really owed her the Ksuba. If she was going to do Yibam, it would be put on hold, the collection of the Ksuba, until the termination of the second marriage. But now that she dies, what happens to the Ksuba? Maybe her heirs... Her father, her brother, has the right to go to the estate and collect because Pe'etzim, she was owed the ksuba from her first husband and to be collected when, as soon as that, that marriage was terminated. Just if she would do Yibam, then not. But we don't know here if she would have done Yibam, right? That's the whole point. She died before Yibam could occur, so we don't know. So how do we look at that? Could her heirs demand the, the, the ksuba from the estate? Also, what happens to the Nechzim Maluk, to her properties. Let's understand that question. If she would have done Yibam, then who would the properties have gone to? Her brother-in-law, the Yavah. If she wouldn't have done Yibam, let's say Chalitza would have, been, would have happened, what would happen to the properties? They returned to her father's family. So the Shaila is, now that she died before that question resolved itself, where do the properties go? Are they inherited by the Yavam? Because it's kind of like a quasi-wife that where the husband inherits the wife. Or no, he's not a husband. Who said they were going to do Yibam? And it goes back to the father. So what do we say? Bishamah says split it. Let's just split it. We don't know. In other words, it's viewed as like a suffix if she was a wife. So therefore, it's a suffix clapping the ksuba, it's a suffix clapping the Muslim log, it's split. The properties remain in like the status quo of those who currently possess them. So what does that mean? The ksuba currently is by who? In the possession of the husband's heirs. So the wife's heirs don't have the right to go and say, oh, now we want to collect on, our, on, 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 on the dead Shomer Yavim's behalf from the Ksuba that was really owed to her. Because maybe not. Maybe she was omid for Yibam. And if she was omid for Yibam, then the Ksuba wasn't meant to be paid. So maybe that potential is there and therefore they can't take away. Whereas the other way, the properties of her that go in and out with her those are assumed to be in the possession of the father's heirs meaning the, the, the Yavim cannot say oh I inherit those properties because maybe she was going to do even she's like my wife we don't say that so basically the idea is that the Shomeris Yavim who dies we're not sure whether she dies as a wife of the Yavim or not 
So that impacts two things. The collection of the ksuba from her heirs, from what she potentially was owed from the estate of the first husband, and whether the yavam is considered the, 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 the inheritor of her nuxim alug. Basil is saying we leave it in the status quo. Okay, now, when we talk about the status here of the deceased brother's estate, in other words, again, what the halacha is, is that, is that anything that the, uh, that, the, that the yavam is leaving over that, that the dead, I'm sorry, the dead brother is leaving over, Be'etzem is oter of her exuba. But again, if Yibam is done, then he takes over that entire estate and it's not paid then. So let's say, the brother left money. So let's just, again, understand just for a second. We're not talking about where she dies here. We're talking about like in general, this transfer of the estate towards the brother who's doing Yibam and how, how much of it, where is the lien for the exuba? So let's understand. Is ksuba collected from movable properties or only from real estate? This is a machloka that's going to be right now in the Mishnah. Most opinions hold that the lien for ksuba on an estate is not a movable property. This Mishnah disagrees, but Mayor disagrees. So if the brother left over money, that money is meshuba, there's a lien on it to pay the woman's ksuba. So now that it's meshuba to pay the ksuba, it's not fair that it just goes to the brother and he just takes the cash and there's no, how is she in control of that? Where's her lien? And remember just one more point here, if you think about the concept, just to understand the complexity. Normally a husband says, I'm gonna pay my wife the ksuba. All his properties are meshuba to the ksuba, great. Here, when a yavam does yibam, what properties are Meshubah to the Ksuba? Not his personal assets. Because not, he's not taking her as his own personal bride. He's taking her over as his brother's wife. Only the properties that he inherits for the brother are owed to the Ksuba. Very important concept. So therefore, she wants a real lien. She wants to protect herself here. So she has to make sure that all those properties that, are, that the Yavim is going to take good care of them and that they're going to be waiting for her in, that, in the possibility that the marriage is terminated. So what do we do if he left cash? We're nervous to leave that cash around. What's going to happen? So we say, land should be bought with that. And he has the right to consume the fruit during the marriage. But the land has to be left with the principle, with the lien being for the woman's ksuba. If the brother left produce detached from the ground, the same thing. Detachable produce is no good. It can be consumed, then it's gone, and her lien can just be gone. So therefore, that she has the right to, to say, land should be bought. So we'll just eat the fruit. If the, the produce was attached to the ground, so what do we say? We see how much the value of the fruit is by looking at the value of the land with or without the produce. We look at the discrepancy, with the difference, land is purchased, we'll eat the fruit. So basically, Rameir is saying, all these properties are meshubat for Aksuba, whether they're movable or not, and we have to make sure that they're put into safe investments while she's married to the oven. Not true. Whatever is growing on the ground belongs to him. We'll see that more about that in the Gemara. Whatever is detached, whoever comes first takes it. If he got it first, he acquires it, meaning he just eats it and no problem. She has no right to collect her ksuba from it because metalatlin is not meshuba to the ksuba. Kadmahi, if she comes first and she seizes it, so even though she's not collecting her ksuba now, but she has the right to demand that the land should be bought with it and he'll only eat the produce from that land. So basically, big picture here, we're understanding that when Yibam is done, only the properties inherited from the estate of the first husband are meshuba to the ksuba of the wife. Rameir holds that even movables are Meshubah to the Ksuba. We're very nervous to leave, the leables, to leave movables around. Who knows what's going to happen? She has the right to demand that they be put into a safe investment of land and the husband, the Yavam, will eat the fruits while they're married, which the principle is, is Meshubah for Ksuba. The Rabbanon hold no. Metalkan are not Meshubah to Ksuba. So therefore, according to, Rabbi Me, according to the Rabbanon, this arrangement is not true. 
What happens? Consult. And after Yibam is done, a Yivama becomes like a regular wife. Well, in every way, we'll see what that means. But she's treated like a regular wife, except for this point. The Ksuba obligation is only on the estate of her first husband. All the other properties that the Yavam owes, owns are not Meshubah to pay her Ksuba. Only the assets that he inherited from his brother are owed to her Ksuba. The Yavim should not say to her, may not say to her, your Ksuba is lying on the table. Meaning what he wants to do, he's frustrated by all these assets being tied up. All of his assets are tied up now that he inherited. He can't sell them because they're all Meshubah to the Ksuba. And let's just understand one thing a little bit better. Normally, when a husband has properties that Meshubah to his wife's Ksuba, but while he's married, he could sell them. And in the event that the marriage is terminated, the wife will go and collect on them from the purchasers. But here, it's not like that. Why? Because the... the the Rabbanon strengthened her power. Why did they strengthen her power? Because she doesn't have the right to collect from anything else that's not the estate of the, of her, of the deceased brother. So all that estate, the, this new Yavim has no right to sell whatsoever. See, he's frustrated by that. It's tied up. It's tied in his investment to the Yavama. So he's trying to free it up. So he says like this, let me designate you a portion that will secure you for your Ksuba, and then let me sell the rest. Let's say he owned 20 buildings. Imagine, and the Ksuba was worth, I don't know, a one four hundredth of one of the buildings. He still can't make one sale of any of the real estate because all of it is owed. It's very frustrating. So he says, you know what? I'll give you your own floor. I'll give you a floor of the building. Just let me free up all the rest of the stuff that I inherited to sell. Can't do that. All the properties pledged to the Ksuba. Unbelievable. Since they're married right now, she's not getting paid now, right? He can't designate a portion. This is going to be for your Ksuba and say the rest of the properties are now freed up. It doesn't work like that. Similarly, in an ordinary case of marriage, a man cannot say to his wife, your ksuba is lying on the table. And therefore, this is for your ksuba, and let me do whatever I want. All your liens on the rest of the property are not there. A person takes a wife, all the properties pledged, in fact, to the ksuba. It's so strong. Now, even though it doesn't mean here that the husband can't sell at all, in a regular case, a husband could sell to so collect. But again, what it means is that you can't remove the lien. And that's, again, an important distinction to get. By Yavama, the lien is so strong that whatever he inherits from, the, from his brother, he cannot sell at all. By regular wife, he could sell, just the lien is there. She could collect from the, from the properties, from the, from the customers. Gershav, after Yibam, the Yavam divorces her, in la she's entitled only to the Ksuba. So in other words, at that point, he could give her a specific portion. At that point, it's payout time. So you could give her whatever the value to is. Hechzir, if he remarries her, she's like all other women who were divorced and remarried to the first husband. She's only entitled to the first Ksuba. What does that mean? Let's say a husband divorces his wife and then she agrees to remarry him before she collected her Ksuba. It's an interesting case. She's not entitled to two Ksubas then. Why? Because we assume that's exactly what it is. It's like she's kind of like being mochla. That's the idea. If you accept to get to go back into the marriage without without first collecting on your first ksuba from the from the first marriage, that means you're being mochel. So too with the Yavama. If she if she gets divorced from the Yavam and she didn't collect the ksuba and then she gets remarried right away, so what do we say? We say that she's not entitled to two ksubas, but rather only to that one ksuba, which would be paid out whenever the second marriage would be terminated. Shkayach.